At This Fire is a meeting between history and story. And at this meeting, they will talk of things many considered to be forgotten, and these things will be reclaimed. At this meeting around the fire, vice is given to the lost, and light is shed on things always meant to shine. These will not be talks in the dry words of dispassionate historians, but they will be instead the passionate utterances of inspirations and histories. At this fire, you will hear the Anansi Chronicles. Over 200 years ago, trading ships going about their business in ancient Greece were terrorized by robbers in search of the grain and olive oil that they carried. These were the earliest recorded accounts of piracy. Later in history, the Vikings would become infamous for attacking shipping and coastal settlements. Then, during the 16th and 18th century, governments issued letters of marquee, which allowed sailors, then known as privateers, to attack the ships of enemy nations. These letters protected them from being charged as pirates, a crime that was punishable by death. However, as demand for privateers began to dry up, many of these men and women turned instead to actual piracy. Piracy's golden age encompassed the late 1600s and the early 1700s. This was also, coincidentally, a period of much nautical activity, as the European nations peddled flesh to the Americas and the Caribbean, and then shuckled back sugarcane and cotton to Europe. Slave ships carried valuable cargo, and they were tempting targets for enterprising pirates, who often stole and resold the kidnapped Africans. However, an African slave whose capturers were attacked at sea by pirates could find themselves in a strange position, with far more prospects than whatever awaited them at the end of their awful passage. Africans could accumulate money, wealth, and power as pirates. The African who found themselves on a pirate ship entered a merit-based society where the strong could rise to the top. At the height of piracy during the Golden Age, historians believe that approximately 30% of all pirates were black. Others say that blacks made up 50% of all pirates in the Caribbean. It was not just, however, Africans captured on slave ships who became pirates. A pirate was, by definition, the scourge of civilized society someone who had spurned the oppressive laws of any nation and those who lived by a different set of rules. What better place for a runaway slave to build a life, in a world literally set against them, than in the open water amongst the other rejects of society? There are many records and fewer historical accounts of slaves and would-be slaves who climbed the ranks of pirate society to achieve infamy. One such story is the legend of Henry Caesar. He is believed to have been born to a slave family on the French plantation Arnat. He worked in the house during the early years of his life, but he was big and strong, so eventually Caesar was sent to the lumberyard. There, the overseer was a cruel man who delighted in torturing the slaves under his supervision. And so one day, when Caesar 
still a clumsy, oversized boy, made a mistake, the overseer scarred him with a saw. However, the world was changing, and Henry Caesar lived to witness that resounding collective shattering of chains that was the Asian Revolution. As the story goes, Caesar repaid that cruel overseer and then went on to join Toussaint, Dutty Bookman, and the other warriors as they expelled their oppressors. Caesar, now a man, eventually grew disillusioned with the pains of this new, isolated, and globally persecuted nation. So he stole a Spanish ship and took to the seas. Like many other enslaved and would-be enslaved, Henry Caesar's life is lost to the official records. But around this fire, we weave together what we know from history, along with any available threads of legend, and of course our own storytelling prerogative. It is among the dark and unpredictable waters of the high seas where history ends and our story begins. The night air was warm, and the moon shone down bright on his scarred face. The stiff-backed captain stood on the quarter-deck with hands behind his back like a soldier, staring intently out at the sea with his one good eye. The other, just a useless white ball, was the gift from a long-dead Frenchman, and it was hidden behind a leather patch. The telescope rested unused in his gnarled hand. On his side shone the gold hilt of a sword. Land ho! The hoarse-voiced cry of the man in the crow's nest seemed stifled against the thick blackness of the water and the night. Caesar raised the eyeglass and could make out the dull outline of the keys, those dangerously close group of islands that they had set sail for over a fortnight ago. He felt the broad shadow of Jean, his first mate, fall over his right shoulder. Drop anchor, mon ami. Caesar gave the command without turning around, and Jean disappeared again with only a grunt of understanding. The others would sleep in shifts, but the captain had not slept since they entered the waters of the Atlantic. He had dreamed, but he had not slept. He had dreamed of a dark room that smelled like piss, shit, and sweat, of the pink round face of a fat man as he issued the command to hold him down, and then cold, deadly sharpness pressed up against his face. He had not slept, but he had dreamed of the mulatta woman with her dead father's green eyes, but the beautiful black skin of her mother. He had dreamed of her surrounded by the three children who carried his features, and they had been standing on a beach in front of a white-walled house. Because he did not sleep, Caesar heard the sounds of pursuing ships before the cry rang out from the crow's nest. His crew, hardened from years of battle, were already running to their stations. He did not need to shout orders, because to them, this was like a beautiful and deadly dance. So instead, he just shouted the words of blood and war. The words that would set their spirits aflame better than the strongest coffee in Port Royal. The ship came into view and the light from the cannons illuminated the Union Jack. Caesar gritted his teeth and waited. This was work for the men with the cannons. 
they had prevented the pirate hunter's ship from coming up along their side, so the battle would likely come to swords. That was where the towering captain Cesar Legrand would do his part. In the meantime, he just watched the flurry of black, brown, and white bodies as they raced across the deck, putting out fires, lighting cannons, and furiously shifting the sails to avoid the enemy onslaught. He shouted encouragement, profanity, and the occasional command, but you did not survive as a member of Black Caesar's crew unless you knew your job, and these men and women knew their jobs well. The sun was cresting the jagged row of islands when the ships finally closed on each other. The hooks and the ropes were connecting to the British faster than their soldiers could hack them away. And Caesar, finally happy for something to do with his hands, jumped onto two sturdy ropes and began to walk to the other ship. The dark waters tossing and turning several hundred fathoms below him were already scattered with the bodies of pirates and soldiers alike. If he had looked down, he would have seen the hungry jaws of sharks already tearing these bodies into pieces, staining the hulls of the ships with the blood of those who sailed them. Caesar did not, however, look down. He carried his broad curved sword in one hand and the other hand was wrapped around the well-worn grip of a pistol. His single eye latched onto a red-faced soldier who was approaching his rope with raised sword. Caesar spat into the wind, leveled the pistol at his target, and shot the man dead. His body wavered against the force of the gunshot, but he just walked faster, using the momentum to carry him over to the other side. Caesar leapt aboard the pirate hunter's ship, and immediately the swords of five soldiers were being thrust at him. Pieces of the ship exploded as several guns were fired. He rushed soldiers without waiting to catch his breath, using his size and strength to surprise and overwhelm them. His sword slashed and sliced, and still he moved deeper into the group of soldiers until he was too close for them to use their guns. It was hard for these soldiers to tell where the bloody mass of the pirate captain ended and the bodies of their companions began. The fight was short but bloody. When the crown had put the bounty on his head, they had not told the men that it was the devil himself who sailed the ship, the bookman. And as Caesar stood panting, his face almost completely covered in blood, even some of his own crew made the sign of the cross and averted their eyes from their awful captain. There were no prisoners. Dead men tell no tales, Caesar grunted as he crossed the ropes to return to his ship, leaving his crew to finish the work. In the captain's cabin, he stripped himself down to scarred nakedness and let the icy cold water in the waiting bath wash the blood from his body. The water was red and thick when he was done, but he was clean. The closet held the fine clothes of a pirate captain, a self-made man of the new world. He dressed himself slowly in the dark finery that was expected and looked at his face in the large mirror hanging over the sink. Caesar used a towel to clean the remaining spots of blood from his shining bald head, and then he glowered at his reflection his lean face and empty white eye. 
He thought again of the brown-skinned woman and the children and the beach. Then he sighed, shook himself, and returned to the crew. He ordered the ship plundered and then sunk. It would not do to give away their position to any who might come afterwards. Taking care of the pirate hunter's ship took that entire day, and although Caesar worked alongside the rest of the crew to transport the bounty and rig the controlled explosives that would sink the ship, he still spent that next night standing on the top deck, dreaming but not sleeping. Finally, the next morning came, and they started the job that had brought them here. Two imposing men and a woman with a dangerous smile, all well-armed, escorted three lifeboats weighed down with heavy chests to a large island. They were accompanied by their captain. The crew was solemn. They spoke only when needed, and their eyes kept darting to the horizon as they navigated the waters. When they reached the beach, they entered the thickness of the forest and discovered with relief that the pieces of wood they had fashioned were still hidden under the now brown leaves. They returned with sticks that were heavy enough to bear the weight of the oak chest, which they strapped to the top. Then the two men and the one woman lifted the burden onto their shoulders with heavy groans and followed Caesar into the forest. They followed their captain over the sprawled trunks of ancient trees and up uneven slanting hillsides and finally down into the dark gully where the sunlight barely streamed through the branches. Caesar's sword was drawn once again as he scanned the bushes for signs of crocodiles or the other creatures who made this place their home. After some time, they reached a flat space of muddy land that was scattered with the loose arrangement of seemingly random boulders. To the tired eyes of those who carried the chest, red from exertion and stinging from the sweat pouring down their faces, these rocks seemed random and unimportant. But the single black gaze of their captain could see the large rocks as they would appear to a bird gliding overhead. Each boulder carefully positioned along the center of the empty space to form a large X. Caesar gestured and the group lowered their chests with a heavy sigh. Four oak boxes held close with leather straps. Tied to the top of each with a rough rope were four iron shovels. Caesar showed them where to dig and they started to carve a hole in the ground. The earth here was soft, which was one of the reasons he had chosen this spot. So the digging did not take very long. At one point, the woman gasped as her shovel glanced off the side of another chest, already buried deep in the ground. Then she looked over at their captain and continued to work. When the three pirates and the pirate captain had dug a hole almost equal to the height of a very tall man, they lowered the chests and filled the hole back up. Then they walked back and forth over the spot where they had been digging until it was barely distinguishable from the area around it. Returning to the boat took less time. They hid the heavy sticks and then quietly rowed back to the bookman. For the first time in over a fortnight, the captain retired to his cabin and slept. They were back in open water when he awoke. 
is one good eye now clear and bright. Caesar sat down at the dark brown desk in the corner of his room, and his large callous hands expertly pulled open a secret compartment. He removed a big map and unrolled it quietly. The words, to Cecil, were written across the top in bold, neat letters. The map showed a series of jagged islands. Many of these islands contained a tiny, even dashed path that led to a large X and then a small number. There were eight X's total and the numbers etched next to them range from four to 12. In many cases, smaller numbers had been crossed out and replaced by larger ones. Caesar scanned the map and found the island he was looking for. He traced the even dashed path with his stubby finger as it led up a small hill and then down a gully, and finally, the markings on the map ended at an X. He crossed out the 6 that was already written there and replaced it with a 10. Then, he returned the map to the hidden compartment and went to the deck. As he strode into view, the first mate turned to face him and asked, Where now, Captain? The grizzled ex-slave turned freedom fighter turned pirate captain thought again of the beach, the woman, and the children. Home, mon ami, he said with a deep breath, and then he assumed his soldier's stance as his orders rang out all over the ship. There are a few legends of Black Caesar. No doubt a bastardization of the histories of the many black pirates who sailed the seven seas. In the legend that we choose to use as the foundation for today's story, Henry Caesar is believed to have buried between two and six million dollars on the various islands off the coast of South Florida. In fact, one of the islands north of Biscayne National Park and just north of Key Largo is called Black Caesar's Rock. People have been searching for his hidden treasure for years. Caesar is believed to have pillaged and robbed slave ships, merchant ships, and any others who crossed his path for over 30 years before disappearing entirely. Some say he was captured and killed. Others say he landed on the coast of Australia or the Gulf of Mexico and disappeared. There is yet another story of a black family who settled on an island, a man, a woman, and some children who kept to themselves and lived quiet, simple lives. I would like to hope that the man who was made a warrior by circumstance and cruelty eventually found some peace and calm in his life. In fact, the history of black people is full of such stories. Men and women born into hard worlds were to become even harder. On the next episode, I will tell you of another such man. Born a slave in the Old West, he would become one of the greatest cowboys to ever live. Thank you for visiting our fire and for listening to our story. There are many other such tales for me to tell, so please come back. You can also check out the show notes for links to sources about the histories we discussed today. A special thank you to Matt for his kind words and his support of this show. If you enjoy this episode, then please 
Help spread the word by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends about us. You can also choose to support the show financially by using the link in the show notes. If you just want to say hello or maybe suggest topics for future episodes, you can send an email to anansipod at gmail.com. The Anansi Chronicles is a Precious Metals production.